Finding a service solution that helps you keep customers happy can feel impossible. Just like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at a networking event. HubSpot's all-new Service Hub can help, with the service solution part at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform, with an AI-powered help desk and chatbot to handle your frontline tickets, so you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. Good morning, everyone. It is Friday, July 8th. I'm Juliet Bennett-Ryla, and you are listening to The Hustle Daily Show. In today's episode, Zachary Crockett and Mark Dent are going to talk about a little myth you've probably heard parodied many times, how if you just stopped buying a latte every morning, you'd be able to afford a home. As you probably know, the housing market is a little more treacherous than espresso and milk these days, and those two are going to break down the origins of that personal finance advice and how it actually plays out in today's economy. But before we get into that, why don't we share some of the latest business and tech news? UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson resigned from his post amid scandals within his party. Over the next 36 hours, over 50 government officials resigned, leaving the British government in disarray. Meanwhile, in the US, mortgage rates had the largest one-week drop since 2008. The average rate for a 30-year loan fell from 5.7% to 5.3%, the lowest point in a month. Meta has open-sourced its AI translation tool in an effort to build a universal translator. The tool can already translate 200 different languages. And Sam Bankman-Fried, CEO of crypto exchange FTX, said the company has a few billion on hand to bail out struggling crypto firms. FTX agreed to acquire crypto lender BlockFi earlier this week. Finally, at the Hakoneyan Zoo near Tokyo, there are 32,000 animals who are used to eating Japanese horse mackerel. However, the price of that fish has shot up 20 to 30 percent since last year. So in an effort to cut costs amid the inflation, Zookeepers decided to try to feed the animals a different mackerel. However, the penguins are not having it. They are refusing to eat the cheaper fish. However, there is uh, one small trick. Apparently, if you mix the two fish together, the penguins will relent and they will eat it. With that, I'm going to hand things over to Zach and Mark. There's this myth that has long pervaded the personal finance world. You see it pretty much everywhere. If you log on to Twitter, people are tweeting it out. Pundits are saying it on Fox News. And it's usually directed at millennials. But it's this idea that if people just stop buying lattes every day, they can afford a house. (laughs) All of their financial woes can be solved by just not buying lattes. And sometimes you see it substituted for some other millennial trope like avocado toast. But Mark, you traced the origins of this financial philosophy, and you explored why it refuses to die. I guess, first off, what set you off on this journey? I think it is mainly that second thing you just said is that it refuses to die. So I'm 35, and and I don't necessarily remember like when Starbucks kind of started to really hit the scene, but I do remember hearing all this thing like, why are you buying lattes? Like these are wasteful yeah. and, and frivolous and things like that. I can remember that for a very long time. And so I really wanted to just sort of like get at why there's this movement within personal finance and, and to some extent American culture in general to make people feel guilty about the things they buy. <laughs> uh, because obviously the latte advice, it focuses on lattes or avocado toast, but it, it's kind of a stand-in for just something that you maybe don't quote-unquote need, but you still spend money on. And I've really sort of 
wanted to see how that really bears out in the long run for when someone actually wants to save money for like retirement or buying a house or whatever. And then also just the sort of whole way that it's influenced, I think, a lot of our lives when we see this advice everywhere, even if it's just someone actually following it or like someone complaining about it, it's just always out there. And I think it makes us have this general feeling of guilt for when we go to a coffee shop or something like that. And it really, uh, I think it affects (laughs) a lot of people weirdly. Yeah. And as you said, this is about lattes, but it's also not really about lattes. It's more kind of a metaphor for the affordability crisis that millennials have and uh, people who dispense the latte myth. If you just stop buying lattes, you can afford anything you want. In their opinion, this is a spending issue. Like people don't know Mm -hmm. how to manage their finances rather than larger systemic issues that are going on. But really like this whole latte myth started with one guy, this financial planner and author named David Bach. He was peddling this all the way back in the 90s We're going to talk about him, but before we get to his story, I think it's important to step back a little bit and talk about the history of financial planning itself. The burden of saving money wasn't always on employees, right? There was an entirely different world from the one that we are living in just 40, 45 years ago. So in the 1970s, almost everyone who worked, whether it was for like a private firm or for a uh, local government, state government, et cetera, you did not have something like a 401k or an IRA. What you usually had was a defined benefit pension. Mm. And that's mainly just shortened to pension, like at least as we think of it now. A pension was when all of the sort of burden of investing and worrying about how much money would be there when someone retires was on the employer, not the employee. So basically, like, say you worked for maybe like GM or Ford because they did have pretty big pensions for like the auto workers and things like that. Someone who was making, say, 50 or 60K a year would have like this pension where if they worked so many years, they would be eligible for it when they retired and it would pay them out usually on something like a monthly basis, something close to what their actual salary was when they were working. It would be Mm. maybe like half as much or... 25% as much, somewhere along those lines to where you know like when you retired, if you made 60K a year, your last year working, maybe you'd make something like 30K a year in your retirement. Sure. And so you didn't have to like think about the stock market really. You didn't have to worry about how much you yourself were putting in for your 401K. Mm -hmm. People who were able to save on top of like just knowing they had their pension, they would just save. You know, they'd maybe put it in a bank account, a CD, Or if they were very savvy, then they'd put it in the stock market on their own. But there wasn't really a lot of pressure on them. So pensions are obviously still around today. You know, teachers, police, many other employees have pensions. Yeah, public sector. Yeah. But what we're talking about, defined benefit pensions, this was huge in the 70s. And then we started seeing kind of a gradual shift. In the 80s, 401ks took over as the main way to save money. And then in the 90s, we saw kind of this financial planning industry really boom and take off, right? Right. So to give a couple of numbers for context, one of the uh, statistics I found from the Boston College Center for Retirement Research was that in 1975, you were talking around 88% of people in the private sector had those defined benefit pensions. Mm, wow. By the 90s, it was more like one third of people in private sector jobs. So it just completely shifts. 
And because of that, there is the rise of personal finance. These firms did exist, and there were people who had these jobs before then in like the 70s and the 80s, Mm -hmm. but it really just boomed in the 90s. I think there was one statistic that I saw that like by 1995, there were around 30,000 designated financial planners in the US, and that number had increased 50% just in the previous five years. (laughs) So it was this whole new industry because the burden had shifted to us, to employees. Sure. And with that shift came a big rise in these financial gurus, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And This was kind of still pre-internet a little bit. We were just getting into the internet. So it it did start to kind of bubble up on there. But but it was just like you'd see people on TV starting to talk about this. You know, channels Mm -hmm. like CNBC, those were starting to get a lot more popular and a little bit different. And people just dispensing a lot of this advice. There were books like in the mid-90s called like The Millionaire Next Door. Right. (laughs) They would really like just glorify this image of, hey, millionaires aren't these people who spend, you know, a bunch of money on Lamborghinis. They're just really humble and down to earth so you can be one too. Right. You know? And it was all about like coming up with some catchy phrase to distinguish your book. I've thought this and and when I was talking to some people that I interviewed, people who've kind of studied personal finance, all that those books and different TV shows, what they say can be summed up. Don't spend too much of your money and invest the stuff that you save. (laughs) That's really all they're doing, but they're having to come up with all these kind of like catchy ways to say that. Which like in theory, that idea is not evil or nefarious or anything. Oh no, it's smart. Right, it's smart. It's something everyone should do. So it's this kind of environment that David Bach really comes up here. David Bach is, as you found, the guy who kind of pioneered this whole idea that if millennials only stop buying lattes, they could afford houses. What'd you find out about him? Who is this guy? Well, David Bach kind of grew up in the financial advice industry. Before it was getting to be really big, his father had his own planning practice called the Bach Group, and it was part of Dean Witter, which is now Morgan Stanley. Sure. So there was sort of like a kind of family business that he was in. And when he graduated college, and and I believe went to the University of Southern California, he then joined that practice. And he started working as a financial planner. And his father and David Bach, as well as David Bach's sister, were all part of this kind of family business here. And they also taught seminars and they taught classes and things like that on the side. And as Bach was teaching some of those classes, he'd pick up things from the young women, the young men. They, they were oftentimes women is usually who he gave these classes for. And then he kind of got the idea of writing a book of just sort of like explaining some of this advice that he was giving. And so in 1999, he comes out with his world-renowned tome, right? Yes. Smart Women Finish Rich. Smart Women Finish Rich. Is what it's called. And the biggest takeaway from that book was something that he coined and that he had already used it for a little while at this point called the latte factor. Mm. And he said he got the idea, like I was saying, from one of the people in his classes who was saying uh, that she was not able to save any money. She was paycheck to paycheck. And then he asks her, to walk him through her day. And what he finds out is that like most mornings she was buying a latte at the local Mm -hmm. coffee shop. And she was also usually getting like a cookie and like a Diet Coke or something like that eventually during the day. (laughs) But he hones in on this latte and estimates it at $5 a day savings, even though the latte cost like $2 or something like that at the time. (laughs) And then he says, so 30 times a month, that's 150 bucks. Uh, And then he kind of just adds it up and adds it up, compound interest if you invest it, et cetera, and says, hey, 
you could be a multimillionaire. <laughs> she was 23 at the time. And he says within 42 years, you'll have $2 million in your account that you could use for retirement or whatever you want to use. It for. From the lattes alone. <laughs> yes, from, from skipping out on okay. lattes. And he did put in there contextually, like, look, this could be any sort of kind of small luxury or whatever that, that you don't really need. Mm -hmm. But he does and continued to really just hone in on lattes. And sure. he'd have sayings like, a latte a day keeps retirement away and, <laughs> you know, things like that. All right. So the latte became his marketing ploy. Yes. Okay. What does David Bach mean when he says the latte factor? Well, I guess like the overall theme generally is that he believes that everyone whatever amount of money they're making, it's enough to become rich. And you're only living paycheck to paycheck because you're spending your money on stuff that you don't need. Okay. And that's sort of like the overall thing. And he says specifically in his books, don't worry about making more money. Like you're only gonna use more of it. And just really things sure. like that where he kind of just really hones in on this, like you're making enough and, and don't worry so much about making more. So the underlying belief here is it doesn't matter if you're making $30,000 or $200,000 the path to wealth is in your hands. It's your responsibility. And if you don't become rich, it's because of your poor spending habits. Correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that basically sums it up. Okay. So let's go over a little bit of that math you mentioned here. First of all, I think it's hilarious that you actually looked up the price of the latte back then and figured out it was $2 instead of $5. But I mean, in general, is there credence to his philosophy there, his math behind the latte factor? Like we were saying earlier, like it is good advice to tell people to just, you know, save some money when you sure. can. So yeah. there's credence in that. But in terms of like the way that he kind of lays it out as like this clear cut way to get $2 million is is just not correct, even if you just do the math. And, and it's really easy to do the math because mm -hmm. if you do $5 a day times 365 days a year, it's, it's somewhere in the ballpark of 1800 bucks. Mm -hmm. But Bach in his book says, well, if you do $5 a day, that's $2,000 a year. That's an exaggeration. <laughs> and then he said like, and you invest all of that at an 11% growth rate, which is what he estimated the average annual growth rate of the preceding 50 years to be. Mm -hmm. But we all know that that's a pretty high estimate. It's pretty generous. <laughs> yeah. And, and I looked it up and the Dow Jones, if you looked between 1949 and 1999, was something like 9.7%. Sure. So it's not terribly far off, but it's still not the case. And then you have to keep in mind that a lot of people when they're 23 and even 33 and 43, they can't just leave all their money in there for all that time. You might have right. to take some out at times and different fluctuations of the market that could happen when you're doing that. So there's a lot of different variables. But even if you don't take that into account, it, it just doesn't come close to making $2 million after 42 years. And even if you punch that in and do compound interest for 42 years, it still doesn't quite equal $2 million. Like it's, <laughs> right. it's something like 1.7, 1.8, kind of depending on how you kind of work some of the numbers. Well, you know, the real problem I have with Fox latte factor idea is that it he just totally discounts external factors that are going on right now. Realities that young home buyers are facing are different than the realities that homebuyers faced even 20, 30, 40 years ago. Let's go over kind of some of the real systemic reasons that we think Bach misses out on here with his philosophy. What's kind of interesting is that in that book, Smart Women Finish Rich, Bach actually pointed out like, hey, everyone, life's about to get way more expensive. And he like huh. estimated that the average housing price was going to just shoot up to something like $450,000 by 2020, which is actually pretty darn close. It wasn't too far off there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he like actually points these things out. But then he just always returns to 
but you can handle it because, you know, A, because of lattes, B, because you just got to take some money out of your paycheck from the top and and put it into an account, like just things that everyone knows how to do. But sometimes people just can't do them, right? Because housing is so expensive, because we had the Great Recession, which just erased away a lot of people's wealth and a lot of people lost jobs. As I was talking to Jeffrey Lundy, who wrote a really good dissertation about building wealth and losing wealth like 10 years ago, mm-hmm. he really like found something that blew David Bach's thesis out of the water and frankly, most of the personal finance industry's thesis out of the water, which is that it's not these small expenses that make us lose wealth. Hmm. It's these much larger forces that are oftentimes at least partially out of our control. Things like job loss, divorce, high interest loans, health emergencies, right, right, being widowed. Those are the things that really cause a loss in wealth. And this was a really good quote that he told me, Americans are hard on ourselves, but it seems less of it is about frivolous spending and more about unexpected negative life circumstances. And, mm. and I really think that first part of it, Americans are hard on ourselves, is just so true. And I think that Bach and a lot of other people in the personal finance industry who love to kind of say all these things about lattes and avocado toast are really just kind of playing at the fact that they know Americans are hard on themselves. Yeah, it's really like a puritanical form of financial advising where you have to cut out every little luxury in your life to be able to make it work. I often think like, yeah, you could give up lattes every day. Also, what if you just decided to live on the street for a year and not rent a house or own a house (laughs) for a year? Then you'd have enough to save up. Right. right. How far can you take that? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like, what if you just don't ever buy clothes ever? You know, like, then you can retire. But should you do that? I don't think so. I mean, it's also worth noting here that obviously the rate at which the cost of housing, for instance, has gone up has far outpaced the, the growth of median wages in America. In 1950, the average family home cost about $7,400. That's about 80000 adjusted for inflation. But that's 7400 for a house, right? The yeah. average family income back then was $3,300 a year. So the average home was a little bit over two times your annual income. Today, that ratio is more like five to six times. You mentioned you know, the average house is approaching $400,000 in America right now. The median income is somewhere around 80K. We're looking at a dramatically different situation here. Macro factors have shifted in big ways that Bach just completely glosses over here. <laughs> yeah, and when, when we talk about like this whole thing enduring, right? That book was 1999. This is his most recent book, which came out in 2019. That was actually called The Latte Factor. Like, So it's like he's doubled down on this advice as things have changed so much. And and yes. I, like I was kind of mentioning earlier, like he does sort of like mention sometimes that things have changed. Mm-hmm. He came out with like a reissue of one of his books, I think in 2016, this book was called The Automatic Millionaire. And he even has like a little heading on like the second or third page that's just like, who stole the American dream? And he mm-hmm. mentions that, hey, Great Recession happened and some Gosh. of these other things. But then he's like, so what are the secrets? And he lists like, four of them or something. And there's the latte factor right in there. And and another one was just like, own a house, then you'll be fine. But but it doesn't explain like how to own that house or why it's hard to. Yeah. Maybe the real financial tip here is write a book about lattes, make enough money to uh, buy a house. There is kind of a movement within personal finance, both in the sense of like people who are doing it more from just they meet with people and advise them or their college professors, things like that. And also from books, Publishers Weekly had like some article about some new personal finance books that were coming out this year. And like the headline was not about the latte. So Mm. in some ways, we're seeing maybe a new class of people trying to 
get away from that advice. But Susie Orman, one of the best known figures in personal finance, she had some line where she said that people who are buying coffee at coffee shops and things like that are peeing $1 million down the drain. So it, it still very much exists. And a few years ago, we saw an Australian millionaire, I think his name's Tim Gurner. He made waves on the internet after essentially taking box concept and applying it to avocado toast and basically saying, you know, all these millennials complaining about housing and the cost of living, just stop buying your avocado toast. Like, stop complaining. It's really not that hard. You'll become a millionaire in no time. All you have to do is stop buying this $15 avocado toast. Yeah. And it's always like mixed in with like work ethic too. It's like, you're not working hard enough because you're <laughs> eating avocado toast or <laughs> drinking lattes. Sure. All right. That's going to do it for us today. As always, thanks for tuning into the Hustle Daily Show. We're a proud part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. Our editor is Robert Hartwig and our executive producer is Darren Clark. If you liked what you heard, we've got a lot more over at thehustle.co. 